Canucks fans, and welcome into episode 84 of the Canucks Speakeasy Podcast. I'm Pete. And I'm Doug. Doug, I know we were just talking before recording about how lovely and toasty it is in both of our necks of the woods still. Yeah, I feel like I keep complaining about how hot it is this time of day for me, but uh, yeah, like, look, I like the sun and all that jazz, but for me, uh, you know, I'm like, I really, I really want it to cool down, you know, six, seven degrees. My, my favorite time of year is usually between September, October, because you generally do get the sun still, but it's like a nice, cool breeze happening. And of course, it's the start of hockey season in October is probably the best month in, in North American sports. One thing I will say with all this heat is I've been going for swims down in the ocean, which is, is a bit of a rarity around here. But going down to Third Beach and the water is actually nice. Uh, that's one thing that I have actually enjoyed is taking dips in the ocean here. They uh, haven't had an E. coli warning down there. I know usually when it's this hot, the, there's a higher chance of E. coli being in the water. Yeah, there was earlier, and who knows with our beaches, but there's enough people in there. If I grow a third head or something, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take it for what it is and blame blame the city of Vancouver and their public parks. Hey, not a lot going on in the world of the Canucks right now, but we are going to have Lee Froline joining us, uh, Lee Froline on Twitter, and we're going to be talking about the cap. And the team, and of course, there's still four RFAs that need to be signed. And Leaf has some really cool ideas that we were chatting about before. So we've invited him onto the show again to help explain some of the gymnastics because a lot of this stuff, it gets pretty confusing when you dive into it. Yeah, and it, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there, Pete. It is going to be cap gymnastics for the Canucks. And uh, obviously, Leaf will be able to better explain how he sees the Canucks being able to finagle the wares with alls with the cap issues they're currently having um I, I am interested to see how it all breaks i know there's been some scuttlebutt about maybe Yolevi is gonna get traded i don't see his rfa extension deal being that much of a huge issue for the canucks i mean it might come in just under a million or just over a million i don't think that's the issue uh i think dickinson despite him having a qualifying offer of I believe it's like 2.75 or 2.5 he's probably going to get closer to three but you know I don't think that'll be an issue obviously the big big issues for the Canucks right now are Petey and Hughes can you get one of them signed long term and maybe bridge the other Hughes actually isn't really a big issue because he is that 10.2 C can't be offer sheeted uh he really has no control or say on this contract what happens outside of trying to demand a you know his avv uh but yeah i do wonder if they're able to sign one of hughes or pd long term i personally i don't think they will i think they'll do either both bridges uh, well i think they will do both bridges because i don't think they can do long term on either of them right now i i have a feeling it'll be both be both bridges, not one and the other myself, but we got Leaf coming in. He's going to help us figure this all out. Uh, also, a uh, couple other things around the league going on right now that we wanted to touch on. But first, uh, just give our, our Twitter handles a plug here. You can follow me at Pete underscore gas and the podcast is at Canuck Speak. Give me a follow on Twitter at Doug Venn. And then Pete and I continue to build this playlist on Spotify. It's the Canucks Speakeasy outro playlist. 
give that a follow. Check out some of the tunes on there. There's some really, really good jams Pete and I have compiled together, and there'll be another epic song added to that playlist at the end of this episode. So, Doug, just a couple of hits from around the league here before we bring Leaf on the line. Um, Let's start with this Evander Kane saga. Now, I've been kind of watching it with one eye from afar here, um, waiting for more news to happen. There's a lot of of hearsay. There's a lot of stuff out in social media. Um, The whole situation, from what I have seen and what I gather, really reminds me of Pete Rose in baseball in a lot of ways. Uh, Doug, you've been following this too. What what do you make of this whole Evander Kane situation? I mean, yeah, I think it's a good point that you said right now it's all hearsay. Uh, obviously, it sounds like him and his partner are going through a bit of a bitter divorce or a bitter separation. She made allegations that he was has a gambling problem, which I think most people knew. Uh, I believe he filed for bankruptcy last year or he was talking. There was something about him filing for bankruptcy last year. And then she accused him of betting on hockey and not only betting on hockey, but betting on Sharks games, which it's actually written in the CBA that no player is to bet on hockey, period, on NHL games, let alone their own games. Uh, he's denying those accusations. I do believe the NHL is already investigating those accusations and they're probably going to turn up something. I would imagine it could be hard to prove though, especially if he's got a bookie and it's off the record and you're paying them cash. There's no paper trail per se. Uh, But there's also reports that there's a lot of teammates in the Sharks locker room that don't want him back next year. And I think that's pretty telling because he was probably their best player last year, at least their best forward. Uh, He had one of his better seasons at a point and goal-wise in a long time. And the fact that there are now rumors or speculation that a lot of his Shark teammates don't want him back next year because of certain issues he was causing by... And again, this is all alleged reports that he was often late to meetings... Uh, He was often, you know, blowing things off that were meant to be team meetings or uh, practice. He wasn't given his all in practice, trying, or he was being late in practice and stuff like that. And I think one of the issues I heard this morning, I I think it was either this morning or maybe it was yesterday morning on Helford and Bruff, is like the culture in San Jose has really changed. And the Sharks essentially, the money they gave Evander Kane instead of Joel Pavelski. So Pavelski walked, he ended up in Dallas, and Pavelski was a great leader in that locker room. He obviously became the captain and was given the captaincy after Joe Thornton, and he was a very well-respected and liked leader in that dressing room, and since his departure, it sounds like the culture on that team has uh, really taken a hit here. Thornton also, another guy who left that organization as well. Yeah, I mean, Evander Kane, leading scorer last year for the Sharks, uh, as you mentioned. But, I mean, if this is true that he is betting on his own games, I mean, man, that's 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 going to be a whole hell of a handful of problems for the league who already have a hell of a lot of problems on their their hands, like with, with the Hawks. And, and for me, this is like, it feels like they've made more statements in a lot of ways about Evander Kane than they have about the allegations in Chicago. 
Yeah, it's not a good look that they came out as quickly as they did and said they were doing an investigation, you know, immediately into Evander Kane and his alleged gambling on hockey, and yet they kind of just keep giving these lame-ass statements about the Chicago Blackhawks incident, and they haven't... they haven't really said anything outside of, you know, there's a private investigator and they're waiting to see what the findings are. Uh, I, I, again, I'm not saying it's right, but I guess one is an actual legal matter in regards to the situation with the Blackhawks. Uh, and the other one is a potential uh, CBA violation from a player, which the NHL obviously has a lot more control on how the outcome of said investigation would go i still think the, the the league has been cowardly and not actually you know stepping up and giving a strong condemnation to not only the person involved in the blackhawk situation but the team and the people behind the team that were obviously seemingly swept that whole incident under the rug yeah, it's, it's not a good look, like you said, and hopefully we get some more information out of both these things soon. For now, it's uh, it's two storylines that are troubling for the NHL offseason, and of course, with no action on the ice, it leads us to have more of a focus on these things as well. Um, one last thing to touch on before we get Leaf here, and it's kind of a fun one, is Alex Ovechkin signs for another five years big deal I, I was kind of surprised when i saw this I, I expected him to sign but i thought it'd maybe just be like a one or a two year and they'd kind of keep re-upping it or whatever but they got it done he's going to be a capital for life so five more seasons and he's behind gretzky by 164 now ovi's already missed time due to shortened seasons and cancel seasons and whatnot he's missed a lot of games and yes Gretzky will have done it in less games but 164 to go five seasons that's an average of 33 goals a year I still think he can do it I think he's going to play until he beats it regardless Doug what do you think yeah I agree I was glad to see Ovechkin sign a five-year deal because I think that's exactly one of the reasons why he did it uh, is to try to chase down Gretzky's goal record. Uh, you said it's, what, roughly 33 goals a year is what he'll need? Yeah, 30, yeah, 33 goals a year would do it. If he hit 33 each of those seasons, he'd he'd beat it by a goal. I mean, I, I do think he can do it. Like, obviously, health is the big issue, whether or not he can stay healthy over the course of the next five years. Hopefully, there isn't another lockout as well. I don't know when the current CBA expires. I would expect it expires before those five years are up uh, that Ovechkin just signed for. But yeah, I mean, I, I think most fans of today would love to see OV break the record. Um, it's one of the few Gretzky records that probably will get broken at some point. And I also think despite, you know, Gretzky doing it in far less games than Ovechkin would have, uh, the fact that Ovechkin did it in this era where the goalies are so much better, there's so much better defensive structure and also the fact that i think the players as a whole are just better that the worst player in the league is a lot better today than what the worst player in the league would have been during the gretzky era yeah for sure um the only other active player in the top 25 goal scorers is patrick marlowe 
He's chasing down Mike Bossy. I'm uh, not sure if he's going to get to him. He's 13 behind. Uh, don't know what Marlowe's got left in the tank, but we will this year. Assuming Ovechkin stays healthy most of the year, we're going to see him leapfrog into fourth. He should pass Marcel Dion and Brett Hull, and he could make a run for Yarmer Yager in third place there. So once he passes those two guys, it's it's going to be game on he's going to be chasing Yager Howe and Gretzky and uh, I think I think Howe is certainly attainable it's just can he make that final push for Wayner hey let's get Leaf on the line and let's uh, let's hear how the Canucks can work with their cap all right joining us again Second time around, I believe it is, is Leaf Rolene. Is it third time around? I'm seeing fingers go up here on, on the Zoom call. Third time around. Apologies. Uh, and for those of you who aren't following him on Twitter, you really should. That's at Leaf Rolin. Leaf, welcome back for a third time, I am told. Dude, it's my pleasure every single time. So, yeah, we uh, we wanted to get you on because we wanted to talk a little bit of cap gymnastics here. and uh, and And just... There's a lot of different things that can happen with the Canucks here. And I know you're explaining some of them to us and our, our eyes are kind of going like, oh, like we, we need to get this on to a guy on to explain to us and everyone out there what exactly is happening with the team here. Yeah, it'd be my pleasure. It's pretty complicated because of uh, the, uh, the tightness of the cap that the Canucks have with uh, having to maximize long-term injury reserve, but uh, but it's definitely doable, and uh, there's just a couple different things that they're going to have to think about when they go into it. So, obviously, it all starts with with Hughes and Petey, right? Like, so that's and where Peter. everything everything with the Canucks is going to kind of go out from there. What do you think is going to happen with those two contracts? Do you think they're going to be bridges? Do you think it's going to be long-term? Are they going to be signed together? Is it going to be one bridge, one long-term? Uh, what do you see the team and the players doing here? It's really hard to say, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if I have a feeling one way or the other, but when I stand back and take an arm's length at it and, and look at what it is that they're trying to accomplish, it is going to go into this conversation that we're going to have about them maximizing their cap space this year, because one of them, uh, seems clearly that it's going to have to be a bridge contract at minimum. And whether that be a two or three year deal, I can't say, but one of them looks like it has to be the consideration that the Canucks are going to have is after they get Jason Dickinson and Ole Yoel Levy signed, um, which I assume are both relatively simple things and they won't go to arbitration with Dickinson. What they're going to have to look to do is to get one of them as a bridge contract and then look to try and extend the other contract as long as possible with the remaining cap space so that they can get as close to the cap ceiling as they possibly can uh, so that they can play a little bit of cap gymnastics. Uh, I have a quick question. And again, Leaf, welcome back to the speakeasy, the first three-time guest we've had in history. So, uh, you know, there's a little feather in your cap being the first three-time oh, wow. guest. <laughs> okay. Uh there's a lot of scuttlebutt right now online with a lot of these defensemen signing these huge contracts. I mean, there's reports that Darnell Nurse could be looking at a $9 million cap hit on his extension per year. Do you think there's a little bit more pressure to try to sign Hughes to a long-term contract and maybe bridge Petey? 
that's a fascinating question, Doug, because the more that those contracts this offseason have been signed um, in the nine plus million dollar range, and then we're talking about with Jones or with the eight plus million dollar with Heiskin and Jones, um, uh, McCarr, and now the rumor of of Nurse, which is mind blowing to me, um, I would actually take the opposite position, which is you should take your foot off the gas to sign Hughes to a long-term deal because there's risk assessment that both the club and the player have to do, right? I mean, obviously the player can put their foot down and the agent can put their foot down and say, we're not signing a, a bridge contract. We're only looking for a long-term deal. And then that puts you into a complicated situation. But if all of these players are getting nine now, and Hughes is asking for something in that range or in that Heiskanen range of 8.4, 8.5, something like that over a long-term deal, I would consider that the management should take a step back and go, look, maybe that's not something we're comfortable with doing right now because a player can get injured, they can regress, uh, they can get injured and then regress. Like this is a thing that happens to players all the time, especially young players. Um, and so you're really risking whether or not you you think that there's a long-term benefit to try and get it, to get some cap savings at the end of that deal. And that's really the only reason that you go long-term, right? The only reason you go long-term is to A, to keep somebody locked up. But for a player coming off of a entry-level contract, uh, immediately off of an entry-level contract rather than bridging them and then having them sign another RFA deal is so that you're going to get some cap savings at the back end of it. And when we're talking about a flat cap for multiple years and we're not sure what the salary cap is going to get raised by in the subsequent years following that, I would mitigate, I, I think I would be leaning more the other way to bridge both of them. That would be my personal, that would be my personal preference, I think. So speaking of large contracts by defensemen, the one that Zach Wierenski signed really jumps out at right. me. Um, that's a that's a nine point five cap hit, a little bit more than that. Now he's twenty four and Hughes is twenty one. Do you think that that helps a guy or the or the team and the players say, hey, look, this was the, the bridge situation that Wierenski got, it averaged to 5 million a year. And I think Hughes will be north of 5 million, but you know, just, just as an example, say we want to sign you to the bridge deal. And then we're prepared to give you down the road, this big deal. And hopefully by then also with the cap going up, there's a little bit more flexibility with that. But do you think deals like that for the guys coming out of these bridge deals, do you think that maybe makes it more enticing to a guy like Hughes and, and for the Canucks as well? Well, I mean, from the Canucks perspective, I think it's a little bit of a double-edged sword because you can make that argument uh, of using Wierenski or a few other um, examples of, of players who took that bridge deal immediately afterwards. P.K. Subban was one back in the day, obviously, who had a similar type of deal where he took a bridge and then took the, the $9 million deal. And you could say, okay, well, that's the model that we want to follow uh, in negotiation. However, what that shows is that they did have to pay Wierenski 9.5 coming out of it uh, because they are buying up mostly unrestricted free agent years. Whereas the idea of putting, getting Quinn Hughes under a uh, long-term extension now is that most of them will be RFA years and only buying a few or a couple UFA years. Um, therefore the argument would be that uh, the average annual value should be much lower uh, because they're only unrestricted free agent years. 
for the player, I think that um, Quinn Hughes probably is in a sphere where he would be fairly comfortable getting a six-year deal and getting paid his money now, uh, betting on himself that he would be able to get a max contract at the end of that uh, and that he'll have a long career. So from a player's perspective, I think that uh, he'll probably still want to push to as many years as and with a higher AAV as he possibly can. You also got to think that the Canucks don't want to potentially cause more issues for themselves in the future by potentially bridging PD and Hughes to a shorter, maybe like a two-year bridge deal. And then that same offseason, you've got Miller and Hughes, or pardon me, Miller and Horvat coming up as well. So you would have to assume the Canucks also don't want, and I could be wrong, but you probably assume if they're going to bridge both PD and Hughes, they would want one of those contracts to maybe be a year longer or a year shorter, just so they're not having to deal with this exact same situation again in three years time. Yeah, that's logical, Doug, but here's a counterpoint to that. The counterpoint could be that say they wanted to do Elias Pettersson on a two-year deal rather than a three-year deal. Maybe you want him to come up in a year where JT Miller is at the end of his deal and maybe they move him a year out from now so that they can buy themselves the cap space to extend PD to a, a, a full maximum contract. There's also though the thoughts that it, PD could get a three-year bridge and Hughes could get a four-year bridge in there as well. Do you think that is a possibility? Just because again, the different contract statuses, do you think there's a possibility that they would go that route? Yeah, I think that's a strong possibility, specifically from the club's perspective. I think that that's what the club would want. And but again, I'll go back to this thing where, like, I don't think that that for the for Pedersen, that's an unreal expectation because I believe his AAV is going to be significantly higher. Um, and then he's got the ability to um, still have it be an RFA after a three-year deal, and then get a, a max contract after that. I would be a little bit more suspicious that that uh, Quinn Hughes, uh, the same agent, obviously, would recommend that that's a good move for him to do. And I think that 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 it, although I think that's the club's ideal scenario, it would be three and four years, respectively. I don't think that would be the players. It's interesting because, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of rumblings that the team wouldn't want to necessarily long term one and short term the other. Do you think there's any truth to that? I mean, it's it's only supposition at this point. Who really knows what what they're what's been going on and what their their conversations have been? But um, ultimately, what it comes down to is this greater conversation of trying to project forward what their flexibility, as Doug you were saying, what their flexibility when their UFAs are coming up, when their RFAs are coming up, uh, and making sure that. Uh, they can keep the core together and pay these guys appropriately and not putting themselves into a situation where they're going into another off season like this, where they have multiple questions to answer at the same time. And we all saw this one coming for a while. I mean, we're already looking two years from now where we see both uh, Miller and Besser, right? Like, I mean, this is just what we do in this market, but this one we really saw coming for a while, didn't we? We did, but we also have to remember that on that three-year bridge deal for a guy like Pedersen, um, Tyler Myers comes off the books at $6 million as well, too. And it's Miller and Horvat the same year. Besser's up next year. 
Right. I, we'll, we'll get it right eventually on this episode. Won't we, Doug? <laughs> it is confusing. There's big players coming up every year. It seems like right. for the it, Canucks, which is like, uh, it's, it's Petey Hughes this year. It's Besser next year. And then it's Miller Horvat the, the year after oh, getting it right uh, eventually. So with all that in mind, what do you guys think? Like if, what do you think is going to happen with these two deals? Uh, they're both going to get signed. Uh, like that, there's no doubt about it in my mind uh, that they're going to get signed. And I don't really want to guess what the the annual average value or I mean the cap hit or the actual term will be. The only thing that I feel really comfortable in saying is that once all three or four of these RFAs, if you include Yoel Levy in that group, I do. But if if you include all four of those RFAs, um, that when the puzzle is all put together, they are going to have no cap space at all. They are going to be really, really close to 81.5. And if they juggle it correctly, they might be only a few thousand from the from the uh, salary cap. And I think ultimately whoever signs that last deal, and I think that's what it'll come down to, is that you'll see this really odd number. It won't be like a round number. <laughs> it'll be it, it'll be like, you know, 8.1 three nine million dollars or something like that just because it'll get them as close as possible to 81.5 million this is a good thing right from the team's perspective there is actually an advantage to doing that for, you're, with uh with the opening night rosters right with the whole michael ferlin situation yeah and for sure and, and basically what it says is it, it says to the player the last one you know in the uh, musical chairs of of rfa contracts it basically says to him we're going to give you every dollar we can do you think there, I, I know you don't want to speculate on what you think the average salary will be or the cap it will be on PD and Hughes, but do you think there are some favorable comps that you can look at and say, Hey, look, I mean, the Barzell one for PD seems pretty comparable. You, you have to assume with inflation, PD's going to get a little more than 7.5 on a three year bridge deal. If that is the road, the Canucks do indeed go down. Obviously, Pete brought up earlier the comp of Borensky's bridge deal in Columbus. And again, you have to assume that the average salary will be a little bit higher than what Borensky signed his uh, bridge deal for. Do you think there are some comparable contracts of UFA players that have been signed recently that you can give us a rough idea on what we should expect as Canuck fans, these contracts to kind of look like? Yeah, uh, I mean, off the top of my head, the Wierenski one is the one that for the last year I've thought was probably the most likely one. Um, but <clears throat> with the escalating salaries, I think you'd have to um, imagine that uh, that's going to increase a slight amount just because of the premium people are paying for young defensemen these days. But I mean, the the other one was coming out of Columbus as well, too, is Seth Jones is also just coming off of a bridge deal as well. Um, and so maybe it ticks up a little bit higher than that. Um, in that range. So I, I think that for uh, a long-term deal for Quinn Hughes, or sorry, for a, a bridge deal right now for Quinn Hughes, I think somewhere in the low sixes is probably probably fair. And I think that's probably something that the player would look at. So, but then I think for a longer-term deal, he's probably looking in the 8 million range, 8.2, 8 8.3. 8 um, for Pedersen, I am... Okay, I, I'll go a little bit out on a limb here. Of course, you want to get the player for as little as possible in most cases. I mean, that is a little bit of a game of negotiations and that kind of stuff. I think that they're probably going to try and make 
Petey feel really welcome and really comfortable with his deal. So I don't think eight, eight and a quarter for Pedersen is out of the realm of possibility. On a bridge deal. Yep. Wow. Uh, so if, if we were to go by that, that's got EP and Hughes at around 14 and a half yep. uh, together without Dickinson and you levy. Now I know a lot of people look at cap friendly. We all do. And I think cap friendly, I mean, I got it up on one of these screens here. They show the Canucks at uh for just over 14 million. So as soon as you say 14 and a half, people are like, ah, oh, you can't do this, but that's obviously not, the case with the Canucks, right? I mean, there's, there's definitely a lot of different ways that they can go about this. And one thing that really jumps out at me, just looking at cap, uh, cap friendly is like, well, yeah, they've got Justin Dallin, Philip DiGiuseppe, uh, Justin Bailey, Brad Hunt, who a lot of us think does have a chance of making the team. They've got guys on there who aren't going to be part of this team on opening day. And then there's the whole confusing Michael Furlan thing as well. So, there's a bit more wiggle room than 14 there, right? Where what are we looking at? Is it 17, 18, 19 million? What do we actually have to play with? Do you think? Yeah. Okay. So like, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right, Doug. I mean, uh, you're, or sorry, Pete, you're just looking at it and you're grabbing the right thing off of it immediately, which is that um, the 14.06, I believe that cap friendly has on it right now um, is a 22 man roster with 13 forwards, seven defensemen and two goaltenders. Well, we know the two goaltenders aren't going to change, so that's not even a question. But the max roster you can possibly have is 23 players. So if we are going to include, for sake of argument, all four of the restricted free agents in Pedersen, Hughes, Dickinson, and Yuel Levy to that group, since they're only one player away from their max roster anyway, you have to take a minimum of three contracts off of their cap hit. Okay. And if you look at the minimum contracts that are signed on there, those are $750,000 contracts, uh, roughly, let's just say for, for sake of argument. So that's $2.25 million that you have to add just to get those four players on to have a 23-man roster. So you get $2.25 million there. There are ways to make Furlins, um, to max out Furlins' long-term injured reserve space, which is $3.5 million. So nominally, what you're looking at is the ability to add another $5.7 million more or less to their $14 million that they've got now. Now, uh, and, and sorry, I should say this. And there's another really interesting wrinkle to that, which is there is there's. OK, so the, try and explain, I'll try and explain this two ways. <laughs> there, there have three different options for caps, cap juggling to make the opening night roster work and to maximize their cap space. One option is to include Michael Furland on the opening night roster. And then on day one, putting him on long-term injury reserve and then trying to max out his $3.5 million. But to do that, they need to be really, really close to the 81.5 million with him on the roster. The second option is to put him on off-season long-term injury reserve, which means that they need to get their 23-man roster as close to $85 million, including Michael Furland, so that they can max out their long-term injury reserve space with him on it. That's 81.5 plus $3.5 million. The third option, which not a lot of people talk about, and is not the preferable option, but we have to admit that it is an option, 
is to not go with a 23 man roster. And they, and this is what Vegas has done for stretches during the last couple of seasons. I wouldn't advise this, but we have to admit that it's possible they could go with a 21 man roster, at least to start and add approximately another one and a half million dollars of cap space. Hey, and look, you, you mentioned that Vegas did this uh, last year to kind of dance around the cap ceiling and with the Canucks now having an affiliate in Abbotsford, uh, being able to only have a 20 man roster actually seems a lot more feasible from a team perspective than it was last year or previous years with players in Utica. Uh, obviously well, it's not sorry. the ideal situation, like you said, but you know, it's only a two hour drive, give or take to get a player called up on an emergency basis, as opposed to flying halfway across the country. Yeah. It, it's not ideal. Um, it's just an option. And so yeah. the, the reason why you don't want to do that is because when you are on the road out East, um, and then you don't have any buffer for injuries to get somebody there. If it's a home and home game kind of, or a uh, back-to-back game. So the whole LTIR thing, there, there's a lot to this. And I've been falling down some rabbit holes, trying to understand it. Now, Furland is currently listed as being on injured reserve. Is that that's right, right? He's he's because he was on injured re- reserve last year. Um, but is that different from long-term injured reserve? Like, I guess what I'm getting at here is, is there any way, like, if the Canucks put him on their 23-man roster for opening night because he's on injured injury reserve, they would have to have a 21-man minimum instead of a 20-man minimum. Is that correct? No, that's not. No, it, it it's not. And, okay, so bear with me here a little bit, and I apologize for people if I start spitting out some numbers that make this uh, <laughs> a little bit like to follow along um, from a from an audio podcast. But let me go back to those first two options that I suggested, and 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 explain the difference between someone being on long term injury reserve, off season long term injured reserve, which is where he currently sits. Okay. He currently sits in in off-season long-term injury reserve. And then there's the difference is um, it is technically the same, but has some slightly different implications if they they activate him for opening day and then add him to long-term injury reserve on day one. And really what that comes down to is juggling your cap space Uh, And whether you want to, whether you think you can allocate it properly to maximize your, your, that, those cap dollars of injured reserve space, that $3.5 million that he has. So let me put it, so let me put, okay, sorry. Well, I just wanted to um, just ask if he needs any sort of clearance, even if it's just a, a paper move going from injured reserve to roster to LTIR, does he need any sort of medical clearance along the way to follow that paper trail? Uh, well, the medical um, the medical work on him has already been done. Now, I, I would I would assume that they will do their due diligence uh, heading into training camp and have him checked out by a specialist and say that it's all good. Um, that, you know, nothing has changed in, in his, um, in his outlook or perspective. He himself has said this off season that his career is done and he's just focusing on being healthy. Um, he's tweeted that out in the last couple of weeks where he said, you know, I, I effectively, I, my hockey career is over. And, um, so there really isn't a question of, you know, this Robodaw Island juxtaposition of, 
you know, are they screwing him over? Like it was with Malhotra, like he wants to come back, but they don't want him to come back. They're not going to really be in that political situation. So it really just comes down to a paperwork question and which, which way that the management can best manipulate the cap dollars and the contracts that they have on their roster for opening night to make that work the best. Quick question here, uh, the layman of this group. So I think a lot of people listening to this will probably don't realize this as well. When you put a player on LTIR, you just put them on LTIR and you don't get the full cap relief for the entire year. You don't, the because like what you're explaining is that they need to get as close to the cap to take full advantage of the 3.5 million cap relief that they potentially could get on placing them on LTIR. But you don't just get that cap relief no matter what by placing a player on LTIR. You don't get the full relief. No, uh, the, the easiest way for me to put it to you is this, is if you had a roster for sake of argument that was only at $70 million, okay? Like if you were one of the lowest spending teams in the league and you had a guy like Michael Furland and you put him on long-term injury reserve, the three and a half million dollars, you will get no cap relief. Hmm. And that's because you have 11 and a half million in space million. sitting there, right? That's correct. Yep. So with the re- with relief, it's really for a three and a half million dollar cap hit in this modern day NHL, you wouldn't get any relief up to seventy eight million. So no, it really, it's only helping the teams that are spending to the cap to give them relief, quote unquote. Correct. So in essence, what it means is that you are allowed to spend. The Canucks would be able to spend three and a half million dollars, or up to three and a half million dollars above the 81.5 million dollars so you're talking about 85 million for the canucks however that money isn't banked to you so what it actually means is that you need to get as close to the 81.5 million uh without furland on the roster okay or with furland on the roster depending on how you're doing it to be able to exceed the cap by his by his uh injury reserve And so what that means is they can choose to carry Michael Furland on opening day. Um, But what that means is that they're going to have to have an on paper opening night roster, which is not who takes the ice, but who is on paper on their roster on opening day, uh, be significantly less than what they're eventually going to want to spend the next day after they put him on long-term injury reserve. And the easiest way to do that is by to, is to send down players who are waivers ineligible, which is, you know, usually players on entry-level contracts. It's not synonymous, but usually players on entry-level contracts who can be sent to the minors, whether they leave the dressing room or not. On paper, it's called papered. They can be papered, which means just to file the paperwork, to send them down, uh, on the day of when opening rosters are announced and then recall them immediately at the same time, Michael Furland is being put on long-term injury reserve. So opening, right? <laughs> op- opening night, there could conceivably be a meltdown among Canucks fans when they see that the Canucks have sent Niels Hoglander, uh, Vasily Podkolzin, Jack Rathbone and Will Lockwood all down to the minors, right? But that's just a papering move. Yeah. And so, those the first three that you mentioned are really the the really obvious ones 
And just to try and put the math in perspective so that people understand how much cap savings that is giving the Canucks, Nils Hoglander is getting paid 892,000 more or less round numbers, 892,000. Pod Colson is getting 925,000 as is Jack Rathbone, 925,000. So when you add those three players together, that comes out to be $2.742 million. So less than 800,000, you know, 756,000 from Furland's $3.5 million. So it, those three players by sending them down uh, on opening day and then recalling them for the first game against Edmonton, which is technically opening night, will get them $2.7 million of cap relief if they can get really close to that $81.5 million without them on the roster and Michael Furland on the roster. Now, the question is, how do you make up the final part of that $3.5 million, which is approximately $750,000? Well, here's an interesting wrinkle. They've signed three players this offseason in Justin Bailey, who we're all familiar with in limited time with the Canucks, Phil DiGiuseppe, and Justin Dowling for $750,000 each as well. And they all three of those players require waivers. But once you take the $2.742 million and add a $750,000 contract, suddenly you're at $3.492 million of potential cap relief maximized um, by of using of Furlan's money. So the question is, how do you do that? How do you maximize that amount of money uh, how do you add the extra $750,000 and here's where the complication comes in you can send down those three players that we all mentioned and those are the only players on the roster that are waivers ineligible currently that we expect to make the team now you mentioned Will Lockwood but I would just say for sake of argument he won't make the team anyway but there's a potential that he could and so, and he's at $725,000. So it puts him in the same range. The problem with it is this, is that if you send down those three players, plus we're talking about waving DiGiuseppe, Bailey, Justin Dowling, which will probably have to happen. You could wind up at a 20 or at a 19 man roster, which is not legal. You have to actually have that extra contract on the books 20 players is the minimum that they can have on the roster for opening night. So the real cap uh, calculations or the, the real dancing that they have to do here is how they can have the 20 people on the roster to get them as close to that and then be able to recall from Abbotsford on day two, $3.5 million dollars which is those three players plus one more. So that's four without losing somebody else. But that one player is Michael Furland. So Michael Furland goes from being the 20th player to long-term injury reserve. And then they add the four players, which equal $3.492 million. So that's why I, and I know this is complicated, but this is why I say whoever signs that last um, restricted free agent contract, which I think will probably be Hughes, they will give them every dollar that they can to get them as close as possible to $81.5 million. 
And, and this is something the team did pretty well last year as well, right? They got they got pretty snug up against the cap uh, within a few grand, did they not? Uh, yeah, I think they were within eight eight thousand dollars last year, if memory serves. Yeah, I think I think they were pretty close. And you know what? That's one thing, and I know you've mentioned this before, Leaf, but uh, that's one thing that Benning has actually done pretty well is being able to get players down to the AHL and papering players last minute to get up snug against the cap. I mean, there was uh, all those years ago when he put Markstrom on waivers and got snuck him down. It was like the perfect day to do it. And Benning has been able to actually kind of think about certain days that every other team's going to be putting guys on waivers. And if you claim a guy, and I think this is the other thing that a lot of people don't realize, like, Oh, your levy's not waiver exempt this year. So if they send him down a, a, the AHL, there's a good chance that he could get picked up. But if another team does put a claim on your levy, he has to stick it out with the team for that year. Otherwise, if he doesn't make the team, they have to put him on waivers again to send him down to their AHL affiliate. Yep. Yeah, uh, you make, there's like three excellent points there you made. So like, that last point, which is that uh, if they decide that that player that they claim off of waivers uh, is no longer um, somebody that they think they can carry on their NHL roster, the team who lost him on waivers has first claim at him. So they, you could take them back right away if you wanted to do that. And so if they placed you levy on waivers and he got claimed by somebody uh, and then they decided two months later they didn't want him anymore and they put him back on waivers, the Canucks could claim him. So um, the... Uh, or within 30 days. That's anyway, sorry, that's within 30 days. But anyway, long story short, um, the other thing is that, yes, uh, they have done very well with being able to put players through waivers on those two or three mass waiver days. There tends to be, there tends to be two or three of them. They're the two days before opening, opening day rosters are announced. And then the day opening rosters, opening day rosters are announced, right? Because you said, these are our final cuts. Here's our 23 guys. These guys didn't make the team. And that makes it really difficult for another team to go out and take one of those players because now they've got to lose somebody who technically did make their opening night roster. Um, that person probably has to be in their eyes, you know, measurably better than the player that they're losing on waivers or that they have to place on waivers themselves. And so going back to that first point is, and I think this is precisely why the Canucks went out and signed that trio of Bailey, which doesn't surprise me that they brought back, but Di Giuseppe and, um, and Justin Dowling, who all have NHL pedigree and in relative senses being, you know, tweeners in the NHL uh, that have shown pretty good to all exactly the same contract of $750,000. So that means that for their cap juggling needs, because they need exactly a $750,000 contract likely to get as close as possible to the cap that they can. If one of them gets claimed, they've got a backup plan. So, and, and that's really, really important. And that's without going to Pete's other option, which would be Will Lockwood. But I think they'll keep him as a bullet in the chamber for later in the season. That just seems to be the most likely scenario for me. Um, but then you come down to this whole question of you will levy Brad Hunt, uh, and I honestly think that there's going to be a, a battle for that final roster spot on the left-hand D side between the two of them, um, unless Jack Rathbone is really not good enough in camp and they keep both. Yeah, one thing with uh, with Waivers Day or Waivers Days is 
you you don't see a lot of guys get picked up on that due to the amount of guys getting sent down because basically teams are sending down a guy they've just been looking at for a couple of weeks who they've got the full scouting on and they'll only pick a guy up if not only are they they believe that player is better than everyone they sent down but is good enough to make the roster so it's there's not a lot of movement sometimes on very deep teams a player will get claimed but i don't think a lot of guys that the Canucks are going to be sending down are are going to be snatched up i think again we 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 put high value on some of these guys yolevi is an interesting one but i'm i'm not convinced he would get snagged if he was sent down no and, and I, this is the other thing, and I, and I totally agree with you, Doug. And, you know, the, this will, or uh, Pete, I did that a second time. I'm sorry, man. Uh, <laughs> they think I'd never, uh, never met you in real life. Anyway, so the funny thing is here is that um, the, you know, of the 18 players that the Canucks signed within those couple days, right? Like uh, that, that was all this depth for both training camp and uh, presumably Abbotsford. All of them, with the exception of John Stevens, who's 27 years old, and that's just a wrinkle of the salary uh, of the uh, CBA, all of them require waivers. Every single one of them require waivers. So the Canucks are probably going to place 10 players on waivers this year within a span of two or three days. And so multiple other teams are going to be doing that same thing. And it really just muddies the water because you might have somebody that's good there but it just gets, they get lost in this field of like, which one does the team really pick? And for the most part of those players, if, if one was highly coveted, they might have been traded already at that point, right? Like, like there's a, there's a possibility that they might get traded for a sixth or a seventh. Um, so the team didn't have to put them on waivers with the odds of them being claimed. Uh, but yeah, like unless somebody gets injured, the day before opening night rosters, uh, teams just usually don't claim play- players at all. They never do. I do think the nihilist Canuck fans out there, and there's a lot of them, are worried about the Frankie Corrado situation where a team like Toronto put a claim on Frankie Corrado and then literally just watched him sit and rot in the press box all year. Whether or not that was Mike Babcock's doing whether or not that was the Leafs just poor asset management doing. I do think there's a lot, few Canuck fans that I've seen tweet out that like, oh, look what happened with Corrado. And they could see the same thing happening with Yulevi. I don't see that happening because I think all you do when you do that is essentially ruin a young player's potential and their uh, progression as an NHL player. But the fact that they can't get into regular season games and you they're not playing games in the AHL and they're not playing games in the NHL. But I know there's a few Canuck fans that are always looking over the cliff, freaking out, thinking the sky's constantly falling. And they were attributing the Corrado situation to a potential situation that could happen with 11. Yeah, I mean, I get that, but I, I think... Um... I think if you levy makes the club, there has to be a push this year for at least if rotating him in, I think you've got these three guys on the left side battling for two spots. And I, I think unless Rathbone really steals the show, then maybe that could be some concern, but um, I, I don't know. I think you, you've got to get you levy playing this year under any circumstances, even if you want to trade him. Yeah. I mean, as far as the, as far as the comparison goes, I, I think you're right about the psychology of the way people look at it, Doug, you're hundred percent right. That's, that's the way people look at it. Um, except I don't think that's how, how respective management groups would look at it. One of them was looking at a former fifth overall pick and one's looking at a former fifth round pick and, and that, and they were in relatively similar timescales of their prospect development. And I don't think that they will view them the same rightly or wrongly. 
and I, people can debate that. That's their that's their total right to have different feelings about what Yoel Levy's um, feeling is. But but objectively, that's not how most management groups will look at it. Uh, for Frankie Corrado to not be waived and to to um, be worth the consternation that everybody put up with, he would have had to have been a lot better in camp than he actually was, and he would have had to have been a lot better throughout his career than he actually was pre-being put on waivers the first time and then post, which is what we see now, which is not an NHL player. So, Leaf, uh, just a couple more questions for you before we let you go here. Dickinson and Levy, what do you expect their deals to be in the range of? Oh, I think Ole's going to come in pretty cheap, man. I think he's going to be a, he, I think he'll be a one year, $800,000 deal. One, huh. one, one, eight, one times eight or one times 8.5 or two times 8.5 or 0.85. Sorry. Something like that. And then Dickinson, I think Dickinson's, I think they're, they're probably going to try and get him for four years. That That's the deal that I, if I had to put dollars to donuts, the re, what's taking them so long is that they want him on a four year deal. If they wanted him on a two year deal, he already be signed right now. The reason why it's taking so long is because they want to get him extended to term in the same way that they did with uh, Garland, Connor Garland, um, and then go a little bit longer and know that they've got that certainty um, locked up, that cap certainty locked up. And I think that they're probably, that is going to wind up in that. I, I have a feeling that might be a little higher than people think it's going to be, but I, I, I don't think it'll be above 3.2 but I wouldn't be surprised if it broaches three. You're wearing a Belarus shirt right now. Danila Klimovich. What do you think of this kid? I don't have a clue. <laughs> I, don't I don't know anything about the guy. I've seen every, I've seen the same thing everybody else has, which is like highlights of the under 18 tournament. I've read a couple articles from him. I saw that uh, somebody put out an article of him today, which I've uh, uh, starred so I can go back and read it and take a look at it. Um, but uh, I do know that, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about uh, how much uh, scouting has been done from him in his league play uh, back home in Belarus. And I think that uh, there's a lot of grand statements being thrown out there about either three games from him at the World Cup or his five games at the under 18s, uh, as opposed to the 40 odd games he played during the regular season, because um, there's nobody who's watched the majority or even most of his, you know, the majority or even like a very significant chunk of his, of his league play. I'm certain of that. So who knows, man? I mean, this is not a guy that, uh, that is easy to scout. And I just think that it, that's sort of adds so much more fun for the fans and for people like us to be able to see him in camp. Um, because that's, because he's just going to be, he, he's like the mystery box, you know, like what's, what's in the box. <laughs> so let's find out, you know, let's hope it's not like a UHF moment and it's nothing. Right. Um, yeah, it's it's it. just, it's just such an interesting story though. I mean, it's a second round pick, our first pick in the draft who gets signed right away out of Belarus. Like, I mean, like Doug, you just don't see that very often, do you? No, and uh, like I said it before, like I'm excited and I think there's a really good marketing opportunity here for the Canucks to potentially have him playing games in Abbotsford if he's ready. I think there'll be fans wanting to go and see this kid play. And I I know there's a lot of talk about whether or not Pod Colson will be ready out of training camp to be on the Canucks roster. I think he does make the team out of training camp. But, you know, even if Pod Colson doesn't make the team, he got Pods and Klimovich down in Abbotsford. I mean, 
there, there will be people wanting to go and watch tickets and, you know, pay to see games. I know I want to go out there and watch a game with this kid as well. I, I do think, and again, I'm not a scout by any means, but uh, I do think that he is a home run pick. If he hits, it can be an absolute home run. I mean, you could say this about a lot of mid to late round picks for the Canucks, but he definitely seems like if this player hits, he could be an outstanding pick for the Canucks. Would you say Leaf, he's currently the best prospect in the pipeline the Canucks currently have? Not including Pod Colson. Not including Pod Colson. Not including Pod Colson. <laughs> or I mean, Rathbone. Or Rathbone. Yeah, I think at forward he he definitely is because yeah, I think Rathbone is still. I in my opinion, Rathbone is is going to be a legit um, person to watch for the next two years because uh, I think there's a lot of upside there, and so you know, there, there's the chance to be a better Shane Gostisbehere, let's say, or somebody who's Shane Gostisbehere with a little bit more physicality, like. That option is there, even if he doesn't work on the first power play unit. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I would say he would he would kind of have to be because you you would just think on pure upside. Obviously, he's going to be rated higher than a Jonah Gajevic, uh, and there really isn't a lot else um, really when you start talking about guys that you might be super excited about high upside with. Um, and, and the you know it, what? Uh, okay, let me throw it out to you guys. I got a question for you guys. And are you a little bit surprised? Because, yes, the likelihood is Pod calls and makes the team. Absolutely, there's there's a likelihood. I threw it out there on Twitter just to sort of see what people's reaction would be to the idea that Pod Colson didn't start with the Canucks. I think he does, but I just sometimes put this stuff out on Twitter just to see how rationally people can have a conversation about something like that, which was, you know, what if he doesn't start on the road for those six games? It's two weeks. He starts in Abbotsford. I thought there'd be a lot more people going, yeah, I'd be stoked for that because I'd like to go see Pod Colson and Klimovich on the same team if Klimovich is on that team. But let me throw it out to you guys. Are you guys a little bit surprised that if there's a potential for Klimovich to play in Abbotsford, that they haven't signed another Russian player to play in Abbotsford? I've I've thought about this for a while. I mean, I'm not ruling it out that they uh, they aren't going to still maybe sign a Russian, although I'm not really sure who it would be. But... Um, yeah, it's something I've been thinking with Pod Colson as well. And I have thought about that when I saw that tweet. I'm like, you know, Klimovich and Pod Colson, they could be buds on the road in Canada. Maybe there's there's something to that. Um, Klimovich, yeah, I mean, geez, he could play anywhere right now next year. We really don't know, uh, which is, again, the, the whole mystery box. But um, I know what you mean about putting a question out there. I put a question out uh, about Ole Olevi for a second round pick. Would you do it? And the, the responses were very divisive. I, I saw people saying they wouldn't do it for a first to people saying they'd trade it for a fourth. You know, like it, it was uh, it was interesting to see uh, just what a top pick in Vancouver can do to, to garnered value. And Klimovich and, and the Russian factor, I mean, and, and Pod Colson, I mean, it, it, it's it's intriguing to think about if they're the only two Russian speakers in camp and they bond and what the organization would decide to do with that. I'm glad you made that distinction, Pete, because they're not both Russians. One's a Belarusian and mm-hmm. one's a Russian. They're both Russian speakers. Yes, that's uh, what I mean, though, is yeah, they both yeah. speak Russian. But I see a lot of people making that that mistake and, and yeah. thinking that Belarus like, Belarus is a gigantic country, right? Relative to other countries in Europe, it's a mm-hmm. big country. So, um, but yeah, Russian speaking is is different. Because uh, and the reason why I do want to make that distinction is because in in the lower mainland specifically, we have a fairly large Belarusian 
community, expat community, which is not a Russian community, it's a Belarusian community. Um, and in, if any of them are listening to this, uh, we wouldn't want them to think that we don't recognize that they're distinct, I guess. I, I do wonder about the Russian factor, if that is still a thing. I, I mean, I guess the fact that Pod Colson and Klimovich are so young, you know, and again, going back to the like fear factor of Canuck fans and what happened with Triampkin. I don't know if Triampkin's actually an NHL player to, to begin with, but how he left because he didn't feel comfortable and he didn't have that, you know, Russian mentor. I know Goldolbin was on the team at the time, but they didn't seem like they were great friends outside the rink. I don't know if that is a big issue. I've heard reports that Pod Colson really worked on his English this past year. So he really wants to be able to come in and speak English as best he can and be able to answer a lot of questions in training camp in English. I'm sure like most Russian players, more so than other European players, he'll have a translator there with him. It is weird. Can I just going off topic here, guys? <laughs> is it just me or is it weird that only the Russian players at least in previous history had translators, but like Czech players never had translators. Like Peter Nedved didn't have a translator when he was in Vancouver. It's weird that the Russians always have the translators. Am I, am I missing something here? Well, I, I just think that you have to look at um, how uh, English has become a usable language in the vast majority of Europe um, as for commerce and for, even things like gaming and that kind of stuff like there's there's english has been used as a uh, as a as a very common lingua franca of of europe um you know even though the official language of, of the eu is french right and so is aviation and all this kind of stuff right english is still has still dominated it just goes to show you how strong an individualistic uh culture uh that russia still is 30 years uh 30 plus years after the wall has come down. It's just, it's, it's a different place. It's a different world than coming from Sweden or Finland. Yeah. I've got a, a little bit of a Belarus connection myself. I've always said my grandma's side was Russian and we actually traced it back uh, through ancestry or whatever it was. It turns out, yeah, Russian at the time, uh, but the village that she's from is actually now present day Belarus, um, or at least on the map, the, the village is gone. But I was uh, going was, was to say most of the villages in Belarus after World War II ceased to exist. Yeah. So it was, though, geographically in present day Belarus, but of course they identified as Russian. But of course now, like the Ukraine, like all the other uh, countries from the former Soviet Union, it's uh, it's a very different place. I've been fortunate to travel in some of them, and it, it's it's fascinating seeing uh, the break away from traditional Russia and in, into the rest of the world or the Western world, uh, for lack of a better description that we can do in a whole other podcast here. I, I'm going to go off on tangents <laughs> of my travels in Latvia and Lithuania and Uzbekistan and wacky places like that. But uh, Leaf, we've, as usual, we've gone over time, uh, just hand it over to you. Uh, any final words on anything at all? Uh, oh, you always do this to me and I'm always unprepared. Why <laughs> am I unprepared for it? Um, no, thanks for thanks a lot for having me on, guys. I'm sorry that I, I went a little bit long. And if it got too muddied in the cap talk uh, and anybody wants to ask me for clarification on Twitter, um, it's very clear in my head. So I'm, I'm happy to explain it to people uh, as best I understand it. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Let's see. The only thing I would say is that... Uh, I am absolutely stoked because whatever we can say, this team is not going to be the team that we saw last year. 
I'm just, I'm stoked about the fact that, yeah, there's going to be question marks, but you should go into every season with question marks. If you don't have question marks, you're, um, you're probably overconfident. Uh, and so I think that it's going to be a fascinating uh, journey to watch the players come together and see how they mesh as a team and what the, what the character and what the personality and the identity of the team is. Cause it feels like we might be going into a season where the identity alters from what we thought it was in, in the, in the last couple of years. So um, I'm just really excited about it. And, and uh, you know, having um, the possibility of having, two more guys in Garland and Pod Colson play the way that Hoaglander played last year is just a, that's a really intriguing concept. And then Jason Dickinson being a shutdown guy. I'm, I'm here for it. Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, no matter what you want to say about the moves Benning made this off season, this team has gotten better. They're going to be a much more enjoyable team to watch. I think for a full 82 game schedule than they were for the condensed schedule we just went through. And I, I do think that they have the potential to build something really good here. The Pacific division is really weak. And I think this Canuck team can easily be top three in the division, if not fighting for first overall in that division. I, I, I think Vegas actually has some pretty big flaws and obviously they made a big move by trading away flurry to free up some cap space Maybe there's an Eichel deal down the way here, but I, I, I don't think Vegas is the big power, big, scary powerhouse that everybody thinks they are. I think there are some pretty big flaws in there and putting all their chips behind Robin Leonard, who's had some issues in the past. Uh, I got some doubts. That's just me. And uh, yeah, I, I'm excited for this upcoming season too, Leaf. And dude, man, it's always a pleasure talking to you, man. And we got to do another meetup. We really do. Yes, we, we do. Uh, we're going to be organizing some regular meetups during the seasons. We'll be putting it out there on Twitter. And uh, once we get a little bit more organized with that stuff and stop toasting ourselves in the sun, I'm with you guys. Uh, it's it's a different looking team next year, no matter what. Uh, the, the makeup of this team is different, whether you like the moves or not. The dead cap space that we've had the last little while is now at least usable cap space. Will it help us short term? Absolutely. Long term, there's certainly question marks. There's certainly risk, but I'm here for it. It's different. It's exciting. And uh, we got a, a good young core. Leaf, thanks again. And uh, we'll do this next time over a beer. Leaf rolling, everybody. You know, boss, anytime. All right, it's that time of the segment for the free pour open floor. And I would like to talk about a band. Uh, I try every year to at least get into a handful of bands that I just missed for whatever reason over the years. There's always a band or a group or a musician from, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. For whatever reason, I just, I never got into. I just missed them for whatever reason. And that band right now for me is Gang of Four. They're a post-punk band from Britain. Uh, and I've just been listening to a few of their albums as of late. And I've been really getting into them. Uh, I'm really into the post-punk at the moment. Uh, and yeah, they're one of those bands that I had heard about for years and years. And I never actually listened to their music. And yeah, this year they were one of those bands that I put on my list as, hey, I want to check these guys out. I know a lot of musicians and a lot of friends that I are big fans of this, of this band. So yeah, check out Gang of Four. Uh, they have a couple of really good albums, and one of the songs I would definitely recommend to check out if you're just trying to dip your toe in is Ether. 
you've, you've mentioned post-punk a couple times on this show. I like that. Um, for me, I, I'm probably going to repeat myself here, but uh, if you haven't started watching Ted Lasso yet, you really should. The new season is out. There are only two episodes in. Uh, this I, I don't watch a lot of shows, and I, I certainly am not used to the, the weekly show rollout. I think when I started watching Ted Lasso, I think it was all already uploaded. So... This is kind of a new thing for me because I don't, like I said, I don't watch a lot. I just kind of go through like documentary miniseries or get lost in YouTube rabbit holes. So it's killing me waiting a week between episodes, but it's a fantastic show. It, even if you're not, for whatever reason, a, a sports fan, if you're listening to this, you are. But I know a lot of people who aren't sports fans who really like this show. It's fantastic. Uh, check that out. It's back on season two. Cannot wait for the third episode. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Episode 84, just about in the books. And thanks to Leaf for joining us and getting into all things Canucks cap. Uh, I like to think I learned something today. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's obviously a lot of wiggle room that needs to be done. And, you know, sending player, papering players down at the last minute to try to save some money here and there. But, I mean, it does sound like that there is enough room for the Canucks to get all their RFA signed and to have... You know everyone available opening night and thankfully the Canucks don't start the season playing on the opening night of the NHL because that could have maybe caused a little bit of issues uh, I think at the end of our discussion the one thing that most of us realize is the chances of a PD and Hughes contract being signing early are probably not likely yeah, for sure. It's going to be a lot of watch in the calendar for Canucks fans, but man, I'm excited. I cannot wait until October and having games back in Vancouver from not just teams north of the border, but teams south of the border, assuming things don't go completely haywire. Uh, once again, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Pete underscore gas. And also check out our playlist on Spotify, the Canucks Speakeasy outro playlist. It's got all the jams on there. This is going on there too. So check that out. Give me a follow on Twitter at Doug Venn. And be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at Canucks Speak. As always, thanks for listening. Hasta luego.